So, I remember the first time I ever drove a car on an interstate. See, in northern Minnesota, in Grand Rapids, um, we have this giant road. It's called Highway 2. Um, and Highway 2, the speed limit goes all the way up to 55 miles an hour. An unbelievable rate of speed in an automobile. So when you learn to drive, like me, uh, in Grand Rapids, and then sometime later you go down to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And you know what? In Minneapolis, they have roads with speed limits higher than 55 miles an hour. They have roads with more than two lanes. It's unbelievable, and I can, I can still picture it. I'm coming down the on-ramp onto Interstate 55 South. And, you know, I'd been getting ready for this. I'd been prepared for this. I'd been driving for a while. One of my parents had sort of talked me through it, and whichever parent was in the car, I don't remember. Maybe the traumatic moment has been blocked out of my brain. Uh, whatever parent was with me said, all right, Carl, you just need to accelerate and then merge into the traffic. I was like, merge into the... There is an impenetrable wall of automobiles in front of me moving at an insane rate of speed. How do you expect me to just merge into the traffic? But I trusted my parent. So I just closed my eyes and screamed, ah! <laughs> That might be an exaggeration. I don't know. But what I do know is somehow... I kept going the way I was going, I increased my speed, and, and space just opened up. And I came in, and the cars came around, and we merged. Now, this first time that I merged, it was very scary, but it, it turns out, I really like merging. Like, sometimes I just want to go drive on C470 here just so I can merge because I think it's a miracle every time that numerous human beings all traveling the direction they want to go, going to the destination they're trying to get to, will somehow manage to adjust and adapt so we can all move in the same direction to get. Maybe we actually need to learn how to merge in life even more significantly. And it turns out, I really think, the merge is the traffic metaphor that describes our preference for how to do life. Because here's the thing about the merge. When we merge effectively, I get to keep going wherever I want to go. I get to keep traveling in the direction I want to travel. I, keep to, I get to keep traveling at the speed I want to travel. If I do it rightly, I only need one pedal when I merge, the gas pedal. That's the only pedal I need to use. But it turns out, it turns out that if you're like me and, and the merge and the acceleration and the excitement of it all sort of has this visceral connection, um, God's word actually invites us to consider a different traffic metaphor for our lives. See, we are people of the gas. We live in a gas pedal culture. We want to get ahead. And if you want to get ahead, there's only one pedal you need to get ahead in life. It's the gas pedal. You just rip the brake pedal out of the car and things are going to be fine because I'm just going to put it down to the floor. You already see where I'm going, but I want to build it up to get the full anticipation. See, God's people, the Israelites, have been at under the leadership of a man named Joshua, a man whose life we're going to talk about for the next 10 weeks. And Joshua comes into leadership in the life of Israel at a critical time. And he leads them through some 
incredibly challenging and complicated and difficult circumstances. And at the very end of Joshua's life, at the very end of the book of Joshua, Joshua is looking back over his whole life. He's sort of in a reflective mood. He's probably sitting by the campfire. He's got his moleskin journal out and his favorite ballpoint pen. And he's just sort of jotting notes. And he writes a farewell speech to the nation of Israel. And it turns out that he ripped the pages out of his journal and put them into the scripture so that we get to read Joshua's final words to Israel. And there's this phrase in the middle of it that I think, and not just me, but our preaching team, we studied together through the book of Joshua, we think is a powerful summary of Joshua's advice for God's people then and for God's people now, looking back on his whole life. And here's what Joshua says to Israel at the end of his life. Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Joshua decides that if we're going to use traffic metaphors, which he wouldn't have because something about timelines, um, but if we are, there's one traffic metaphor that's actually the best one. It's a guide for us if we're people that do want to get ahead in life, but not just in life according to the world around us, but if we want to get ahead in life according to God's ways, we actually need to use that other pedal. The one that doesn't just make us go faster, but actually prompts us to slow down. The one that doesn't just keep me going in my direction, but causes me to stop and pause long enough to consider, is there a different direction I need to be going? I would like to spend the next 10 weeks with you studying through the book of Joshua, asking one question that I put on a card so you can tape it to your bathroom mirror or right in the front of your windshield of the car. Okay, maybe on the, maybe on the dashboard of the car. I'd love us to take 10 weeks asking the question, what does it mean to yield my heart to God? If, if I could have things my way, if I could organize your life the way that I would like to organize your life, I'm glad that I can't and I don't. But if I could, I would suggest, would you make this question the first thing on your mind when you wake up for the next 10 weeks? That makes you go, how do I do this throughout my whole day today? Would you try to make this the question that as you lay your head on the pillow at the end of the day, you think, did I yield my heart to God today. Make this question like that prized possession you carry with you every minute of every day, that device that allows anyone on the planet to interrupt whatever you're doing, no matter what. Let this question interrupt your day throughout the day. I had the picture, what if this question became like those people with little dogs who they just can't ever part with. So they get strollers for their little dogs to walk around the park and they get little purses to put their little dogs in because heaven forbid I would ever be separated from my small dog. What if this question, how do I yield my heart to God, was kept with us closer than anything else for the next 10 weeks of our lives? That's how I want to start this sermon series. And what I hope is, over this time of reading a story about how God's people tried to be God's people long ago, I hope that we might get a little clearer on our answers for this question in our lives as individuals and as a community today. How do I yield my heart to God? That's what we're going to talk about 
And with that, I want to jump into the text for today. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 1. If you want to open your Bibles, uh, whether on your phone or physical Bibles, go ahead and open that. And we're going to read in just a little bit uh, Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. But I want to set the stage of where we're at. Because as you know, anytime you drop down into the middle of a story, and the book of Joshua happens in the middle of the story of God and his people Israel. Anytime you drop down in the middle of the story, you run the risk of missing some critical things. So let me briefly introduce where God's people are in their life at the beginning of the book of Joshua. I'm going to start this sort of high-level retelling of the story uh, with God's promise to Abraham. God said, Abraham, I'm going I'm to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless that nation. And the reason God wants to bless his people Israel is not the way that we think of blessing often. I mean, often in our world, blessing can become a very inward-focused thing. We're like, hey, I got more, so that's good for me. Blessing can often be something that when it comes to me, I'm grateful for it, and who cares what else is going on in other, in other people's lives. But for God, blessing always has a critical function. God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation nation of Israel. And I'm going to bless you in abundant ways. And the reason I'm going to bless you, and this is the reason God always blesses anybody ever. If you've ever been blessed by God, okay, quick show of hands. Does anybody say, I think I've been blessed by God at some point in my life? Have you ever been like, yes, I can think of a time. This was a blessing I've been given by God. Anytime God blesses a person or a group of people, it's always so that those people might be a blessing to others. God said to Abraham, I will bless you to be a blessing. And that blessing that God wants to give is always intended for all people. You want to look it up in the ancient Hebrew, you know what all people means? It means all people. If you want to look it up in the Greek, when they translate it from Hebrew to Greek, you know what all people means? It means all people. Who are the people excluded from God's desire to bless? Nobody is excluded. So we're reminded, when we look back at the early part of the story, we're reminded that what we're talking about is a story that describes God's desire to bless all people. We're going to read the book of Joshua, and it's going to be a continuation of a story about a God who wants to bless his people in order to bless all people. But then here's how the story continues. Israel becomes a great nation. However, they then get stuck in slavery. But God, who is good to his people, frees them from slavery. We learn that God always hears the cries of his hurting people. Whenever there's injustice, whenever there's oppression, whenever there's brokenness, God always hears the cry. And after they're freed from their slavery, God says, all right, I'm going to take you to the promised land. I'm going to give you some land. It's a very nice piece of real estate. And you know that real estate is a good investment, so I'm going to get you a good piece of land so that you can be blessed to be a blessing in that land, it's not too far away. If you look at the map, you kind of do the math, or if you Google it, you can average out from where the Israelites were freed in slavery and the route they take to the promised land, it's about 500 miles. 500 miles, okay, is that a big journey? Is that a short journey? Well, if you're like me and when your first child is about to be born and you're in Zhengzhou, China, and Beijing is where the hospital is, and it's 500 miles away, you can get on the bullet train, and that's just a three-hour journey. 
If, let's say, it's 2 a.m. and so you missed the last bullet tra train, you can still just get in a taxi cab, and it's only an eight-hour journey. 500 miles, um, if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, there is a man who ran in seven consecutive days, he took little breaks, 524 miles. You could run 500 miles in seven days. If you're like our worship pastor, David, and you want to go on sabbatical, and you want to go to Spain and hike the Camino, it's a 500-mile trail, you can do it in about a month. The Israelites have a journey of 500 miles to get from slavery to the promised land, to get from where they were oppressed to where they might be free. But there's a lot of Israelites, right? It's not just one guy running. It's not just a father and a son backpacking. This is hundreds of thousands of people. So it must have taken more than a month, right? I mean, maybe, maybe they took their time and it took a whole year. Maybe, maybe they decided to camp out at the little oasis that they thought was really nice. Heck, maybe it took them five years. Maybe it even took them ten years. But it's just 500 miles, right? No. A lot of you know this story already. How long did it take the Israelites to cover 500 miles? It took them 40 years. 40 years! On Wednesday, I'm going to be 40 years old, which means if I was born the day of the Exodus, I just, just now, on Wednesday, am getting to chapter 1 of the book of Joshua. That wasn't in the notes, but you guys just sang happy birthday to me, so I, I had to put that in there. Which means that if we want to understand where the people of Israel are at, kind of emotionally, psychologically, mentally, what, what kind of experience they're in at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we need to employ yet another traffic metaphor, which is to say that the people of Israel have just been on a 40-year roundabout. They have been stuck for 40 years going round and round and round, going, I know we're going to the promised land, and man, we're traveling nonstop, but we don't seem to be getting anywhere. Has anybody ever been stuck on a roundabout? I remember in college, I went to Mexico City, and I don't know if it was this particular roundabout, but I remember riding in a friend's car and coming into a roundabout that looked just like this and being like, how in the world does everybody not die instantly every time they come in to this insane traffic circle? That makes it sound so nice. Oh, we're going to put it in a traffic circle. Have you ever been stuck in a roundabout? But here's the thing about roundabouts. Whether or not you've been stuck in one as a driver, here's what I know. Many of us have had seasons of our life where we have felt like in life, we're stuck on a roundabout. Has anybody ever had a season in your life where you're like, you know what, I'm working hard. I'm getting up every morning. I'm getting after it. I'm doing all that I can. I'm trying to, I'm trying to follow God faithfully, but it just feels like for all of the energy I'm expending, it doesn't feel like I'm going anywhere. Well, if you've ever felt that, if you know what that is like to feel in your heart in life, then you know, I think, you know what the Israelites were feeling at the beginning of the book of Joshua. They were feeling sick and tired of being on the roundabout, and they were ready to get off 
of the roundabout and start heading in the direction that they've wanted to be heading this whole time. So just feel for a second. Let this joyful picture just get your heart into the place of God's people who have been on a 40-year roundabout. And, and I think we all have this, like, anxiety of, ah, ah. And that's, that's a biblical term for Israel after 40 years of wandering in the desert. It's, ah, ah. <laughs> so now, um, you might know this, the guy who was leading Israel for that whole time is a guy named Moses. And just before Joshua chapter 1, Moses prays for Joshua, lays hands on him, prays for him, and says, just like I have been Israel's leader, Joshua, now you are going to be Israel's leader. And so Joshua is the new leader. Moses has died. And God is, we're going to read some words now of God speaking words to Joshua about how Joshua needs to get ready to be the leader who's going to finally take Israel off the roundabout. Uh, Here now we're going to read Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I'm going to highlight three things that I see in these words God spoke to Joshua that I think are critical lessons for any of us that want to get ahead in life, not by our ways, but by God's ways, get ahead in life by learning how do I yield my heart to God. So three texts kind of jumped out at me, three, three parts of this text. The first one, um, God says, as I was with Moses. God starts his words to Joshua by reminding Joshua of the past. And if you actually read through the whole first chapter of Joshua, you're going to find out that the whole first chapter has tons of references back to the life and leadership of Moses, the lessons that Israel learned on the roundabout. God starts speaking to Joshua by inviting him to remember his past. And we need to remember the past because if we can remember the mistakes of our past, we're going to be better equipped to avoid those same mistakes in the future. If we can remember and learn the lessons from our past, we're going to be more equipped to apply those lessons to our future. Quick show of hands. Has anybody here either made a mistake or learned a lesson in their past? Has anybody ever done something dumb or learned something from the dumb thing they did? All right, every single one of us can hear the words that 
whatever God wants us to do now in our life and wherever God is leading us in the future in our life, he wants us to start by remembering the past. It turns out that's actually where the Affirming Potential class that we watched a video of, that's where they start, is remember your past. Here's how I tried to summarize it. Um, The past clarifies the present and it illuminates the future. When we pause to remember the past, we can understand more clearly what's going on right now in our lives and we can see more clearly what to do in order to follow God into the future. Second phrase that really jumped out at me is really the theme phrase of that whole passage. Be strong and courageous. Really interesting thing struck me as I was studying through this passage this week. Um, The first time this phrase comes, which is this verse, be strong and courageous, comes right after God says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you and I will accomplish everything I promised. So, So God says, okay, I'm with you. I got you. I got your back. You can trust me. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. So be strong and courageous. Well, if God's with me, I mean, if if God's on my side, if God's fighting for me, if there's a bully who's standing up in front of me and God's on my team, isn't it? I don't don't need strength and courage. I just kind of be like, there you go, right? Go for it. I mean, I've, I've never been in a fight. Okay, one time in ninth grade, I was walking out of math class and a guy punched me in the head twice. I don't know why, still to this day. And you know what I did? I cried and ran away. Nailed it! So I don't know how to fight anyway, but I can imagine if I was going to be in a fight and God, somebody God-sized was on my side, I wouldn't need strength and courage. I just kind of (laughs) like, you know, step out of the way. God just said to Joshua, I am going to be on your side. I am fighting on your team. I am with you in this. And the very next thing he says is to be strong and courageous. So here's the second sort of observation I want to make as we think how do we yield our lives to God. Even when we're doing exactly what God calls us to do, tells us to do, even when we have complete certainty that God will accomplish his will, it still requires our strength and courage. The best understanding I have about why is because God doesn't want to just get out in front of us and knock everything out of our way. God wants to do his work with us. If you want to learn to yield your heart to God, get ahead God's ways by learning to pump the brakes, then I think we need to remember, like God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Which the natural follow-up question is, okay, that's great, Carl. Love to be strong and courageous. How in the world do I find the strength and courage I need Because you know what, Carl? You don't know the situation I'm facing right now. The thing that I'm saying right now, it is scary. It is scarier than ninth grade math class getting hit in the head. That's funny, but what I'm facing right now is way scarier than that. Where am I supposed to find this courage that I need? And it turns out God answered that very question when he continued by saying to Joshua um, this next thing. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The third lesson that I want to actually take a couple minutes right now to to dig into a little deeper of how do we learn to yield our hearts to God is we do that by remembering 
a core, a central, a critical truth about who God is. A truth that God didn't just say to Joshua way back then, but God himself, Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, said to all people for all times, Jesus said, surely I am with you always. How do we find strength and courage? We do it by remembering that God is with you. If we can live our life with the knowledge that God is with us, it will change everything. But here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. When I say God is with you, when I say, you know, God wants to be with you in the, in the good times, in the bad times, in the joyful times, in the sorrowful times, um, I, I realize that there's sort of a, there's a gap that we need to acknowledge. See, on the one end is the way we think we should think about God right? We, we in our brains, we know, we think we should think about God in a certain way. But just because we know the way we should, we think we should think about God, doesn't mean that is the way we actually think about God. Would you guys agree with me that sometimes there is a gap between the way we think we should think about God and the way we actually think about God? We know that we should think about the God who is with us. But it turns out that there's some pretty common different ways we actually think about God. And I want to take just a second uh, to consider four of them, not that I came up with, but that a number of different authors, writers, pastors, teachers have reflected on many times and places. Um, If we're going to think about the gap between how we should and how we actually think about God, there's four different ways that pop up. Um, Any one of them might sound most familiar to you. Some of them might sound a far cry from you, but um, all of them might help us reflect on how is it we we ought to think about God. So here's some of the ways that have been observed that people actually think about God. First, sometimes we think about God like we are over God. This is what we call the vending machine God, right? Look, God's over there, and he is in a nice little box, and the box is actually refrigerated so that my frappuccino comes out pre-cooled. And the way I relate to God when I think I'm over God is I just get my little coin jar of faith, and I take out a couple prayers, and I take out a couple Bible memory verses, and I just drop them in. And when I drop in those coins, you know what comes out? The ice-cold, refreshing coffee beverage that I want. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just God gives me exactly what I want. You know why? Because I am over God. Maybe at some point you've thought about God more like the vending machine God. Or there's the opposite. There's what I'm going to call the worm tail understanding of God or thinking of him as though you are under God. You might not know worm tail is a character from the Harry Potter novels, right? And Wormtail is this character who decides to serve the bad guy. And literally, every time Wormtail shows up in one of the scenes, he's depicted as this, like, scared, whimpering, sort of just nervous. Every moment, Wormtail is afraid that his master is going to smite him and hurt him and push him down under his thumb. And sadly, far too often... God is pictured as an angry God up in the sky, lording over us, and we are under him, and we better be afraid of what God might do 
to us. I wonder if you've ever experienced thinking about God as though you are wholly under Him. The next option is what some people call living life from God, or what I'm going to call the employee version of God. Well, God's my boss, and I get from my boss the work that I'm supposed to do, so I'm just going to go ahead and get the work done, check the check boxes on my to-do list. Uh, If possible, I'm probably going to try to check out a little early on Fridays, and maybe the boss won't notice. Heck, if I'm really good, maybe I can work for God, get my work from God just one hour each Sunday morning, and if that keeps the boss happy, then everybody's happy. Or there's the inverse of from God, which is living our lives for God, which is the one that might sound the best, is the one that has the most redeeming qualities to him, but is dangerous. When we live life for God, we're like the waiter. Yes, God, I am here to serve you. I will do whatever you want. I will get whatever you say. I will go wherever you go. And living life for God is a good thing, except if that's the only way we understand God and it becomes just one directional, I'm just here to do for God, but apparently God's never here to do anything for me. Just like all four of them, there might be some nugget of truth. Okay, over God, I don't know if there's any nugget of truth to over God. But the other three, they might have some nugget of truth, but any of them, if they're our primary understanding, are not going to give us a whole picture of how God wants to be in relationship with us. Because instead, there's one and only one way that God says he wants to describe how it is between us and God. And that is that God wants us to live every day with him. He wants us to think about our relationship as a two-way street. Even though, yes, he is the creator and he is above and beyond all things, he came down to earth to be with us. And understanding God this way is where we find our strength. With God is where we find our strength strength. Which brings us, as always, to the most important question, what is your move going to be? If you can acknowledge that maybe you like to merge, maybe you like to use just the gas pedal and keep going your direction, if you can acknowledge that even though you know God is with you and he will strengthen you, even if you know that you have a past to learn from, you still fall prey to some of these twisted understandings of God, then let's take seriously these next 10 weeks and really ask ourselves, how do I yield my heart to God? What does that actually look like? How is that actually going to show up? Um, we've, We've acknowledged three lessons from the words God spoke to Joshua. We know that somehow we need to learn that our past clarifies the present and illuminates the future. We want to think about, we want to remember, we want to learn from our past. We know that even when we live life with God, that still requires our strength and courage. And we know that we find that strength and courage by more and more shaping our minds, shaping our hearts, shaping our lives, thinking about, understanding, experiencing God as the God who is with us. But here's the challenge we face. You know, we go, okay, Carl, think that God is with me. Okay, that's great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and I'm going to think that God is with me. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try really hard to remember that God is with me 
every day, right? We live in a, my observation is we live in a culture that often thinks the solution to most problems is, I'm just going to try harder. And if I try harder, then maybe next time I try harder, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do better. But the problem is, living the with God life is not at all like trying to run a 50-yard dash where maybe trying harder will help. It's much more like running a long-distance race. Here's the thing about a long-distance race. I don't care how hard you try. If you haven't trained, your trying will be worthless. If we want to learn to live the with God life, we have to resist that urge to be like, I'm going to try really hard to do it. And we have to instead say, how can I train with the knowledge that good training improves the strength of my trying? I want to suggest three ideas. And and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Take your card and I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to suggest three ideas. I'm going to say, pick one. And if you would, write it on the back of your card and would you pick one, I might call it, training plan that you can engage for the next 10 weeks as a specific, practical, hands-on way to try and train in your life to learn how to more fully yield to God. If you, if you can't handle picking just one, you know, maybe do a different one each week. We're going to circle back around in you know, a bunch of different ways, but I would encourage you, try to pick one and stick with it for 10 weeks. Three quick practices, um, all of them coming somehow from Joshua chapter 1. First, came straight out of there. Meditate on God's Word. Interestingly, when I think of the word meditate, what often comes to my mind is closing my eyes, thinking thoughts silently in my brain. Meditation, in our language, is often an individual, silent act. But in Joshua 1, it actually gets paired with a separate phrase. Right before meditate on God's law or on God's word comes the phrase, keep it on your lips. And it turns out the Hebrew word meditate is actually often translated as to mumble or to growl. Yeah. I don't know exactly how to like growl God's word, but try it. Whatever it looks like, to meditate God's, on God's word is to keep it on your lips, keep it in your mouth, to get, get mouthy with the word of God in your life. What would it look like in your life to train by meditating on God's word, putting it on your lips, putting it in conversation with friends and family, repeating it, saying it out loud to yourself on a daily basis? Maybe you pick one different word, uh, passage each week. Maybe uh, if you're like me and when you were confirmed in ninth grade, your mom got you a little plaque of your confirmation verse and it said, be strong and courageous, Carl. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. Joshua 1, 9, May 18th, 1997. And I still hang it on my wall in my office. What if I let this verse not just be on the wall of my office, but be on my lips every day? What would it look like to meditate on God's word? Second practice. Practice curiosity. Here's what I mean by that. We're going to study through the book of Joshua. 
And we're going to come to some passages, and um, the first one we're going to come to like this is actually going to be next Sunday. We're going to come to some passages where we go, okay, Carl, you said this is a story about God's desire to bless all people. And I just read this thing in the story, and I don't know how this thing in the story could possibly be God blessing all people. Or maybe you might think, Carl, I don't know how this thing in my life could possibly be part of a story about God blessing all people. Heck, maybe you're actually in a context right now where you've got some serious struggle, maybe conflict, um, that you're really wrestling with, and you're going, how can this conflict, this challenge, this pain, possibly be part of God desiring to bless all people? Here's my quick observation. Whenever you experience conflict, right, when a boy comes out of geometry class after you and punches you in the head twice. Um, There's three responses that, you guys know this, uh, are sort of ingrained into us even biologically. Uh, Those three responses are fear or flight, like I did. I'm getting to chemistry class or science class right now. Or fight. Whenever pain, challenge, conflict rises up in front of us, we, these are our natural responses. Maybe I don't know if you've noticed this, but maybe you've noticed this. Um, Whenever in the church in America, questions come up, questions about the relationship between the American church and various political parties, questions about how do we worship, what style of music do we have, what type of worship gathering do we have, and there's division. Divisions over different understandings of who God is and, and how God leads his people. Have you ever seen two Christians? disagree on something and respond in one of these three ways, fearing one another, demonizing one another, just running away from each other and staying separate, or engaging and fighting one another? Well, what if instead we responded with a curiosity that said, okay, I believe God is doing something here. I want to be real. I'm really interested in trying to discover what it is that God is doing in this person's life, in this situation, or in this context. I think practicing curiosity is one of the best antidotes to the divisive and conflicted culture we live in, and I think it's going to be critical as we study through the book of Joshua together to have a curiosity about, God, help me see what you're doing in this word. Third practice is this. Cultivate joy. A lot of times, for a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people, following God gets completely contained in just thinking rightly about him. If I can understand God properly, if I can have the right ideas in my head, the right thoughts in my brain, then that's all I really need to do. And my heart, it really has nothing to do with it. I think a lot of the American church would benefit from learning how to cultivate joy in our journey of following God. And I want to paint a little picture of what I mean by cultivate joy. See, um, my youngest son, Asa, he turns three in about a month. And Asa is in just a fantastic stage of life right now. Um, Okay, there's, you know, there's some challenging things, but like I'm going to focus on the, he's in a fantastic stage of life right now. I pick him up from school a few days every week. And when I pick him up from school, pretty much every time right now, 
um, I come in and I, and I open the door, and he's almost always on the back side of the room, and he's usually behind this little like toy container thing. So I can usually see just the blonde tufts of hair poking up. And one of the teachers says, Asa, look who's here. And then from across the room, I get to see, Daddy! And do you know, have you ever walked into a room and had maybe a little child or somebody you love, had their face light up when they see, do you know what a daddy feels when they walk into the room and their three-year-old's face lights up and they say, Daddy! Oh, do, you know what I, do you know what that, do you know what that is? Joy. <laughs> that is joy. Now, here's the powerful thing. Um, this concept, Asa's face lights up when he sees me. And my heart lights up. Like if I could bottle that, and keep it on my desk or in my home or whatever. And I just take a swig whenever I wanted. I want to bottle that. There's a phrase that shows up time and time again in Scripture. I'm going to say in English, um, one of the places that maybe you've heard it most familiarly, we've used it here as a blessing at the end of the service often. Uh, here's the phrase. Uh, this comes from the book of Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. In various translations, that that idea of God's face being upon you or shining upon you often actually gets reduced. They take out the face part and they just translate it to one word, joy. But the biblical image for joy is God's face lighting up when he sees you. Turns out, I think that's what God had in mind when he said to Joshua, I will be with you. My face is going to light up every time I see you. And I think if we could bottle that knowledge up, that God isn't just with us, but his face lights up when he sees us, I think that would be transformative in so many of our lives. So here's where I want to end. Um, Take this card. Would you join me on a 10-week journey of studying the book of Joshua, of trying to answer the question, how do I yield my heart to God? Would you pick one practice, maybe meditation on God's word, uh, maybe practicing curiosity, I forgot the second one, Um, maybe cultivating joy, and let that be a way to train yourself in all circumstances, to yield to the work that God wants to do in you and through you and with you. Would you pray with me? God, we acknowledge that far too often we do just want to merge. We want to get on the fast lane. We want to hit the gas pedal. We want to keep moving our direction. We want to see the speedometer increase, go up and to the right. Help us, God, to hear from you an invitation to use that gas gas pedal. No, that brake pedal. To use that brake pedal. To remember to pause and slow down and ask not, what do I want and what do I need and where am I going? But instead, to yield in our lives and say, God, 
Am I going the direction you're going? And can I learn in all things to follow you? Help us to make this a season of learning to yield our hearts to you, our good God. And we pray these things, as always, in your name, Heavenly Father, precious Son, Jesus, Holy Spirit, who is living here with us each day. Amen.